Hello and welcome to History of the Netherlands. It has been a while since we released one of our regular episodes, and for that, please accept our sincere apologies. Things have been rather hectic recently around these parts, hectic in a good way. And a bad way. And this has unfortunately slowed our production schedule down somewhat. We are, however, slowly ramping up our efforts to produce ever more stories about our favourite little swampland with more regularity. We just ask for your continued patience in that space. We promise we will make it worth it. If you're interested in hearing more about what's going on behind the scenes with us, stick around to the end of this episode. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 40, The Rhyme and Unreason of Treason. After being forced to sign the Treaty of Arras in late 1482, Maximilian of Habsburg found his authority in Flanders being challenged by a group of powerful nobles and patrician merchants from the big cities of Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres. Using their social, economic, and political clout, as well as the physical possession of Maximilian's children, an alternative government was set up in Flanders in the form of a regency council, allied to the French king. But when Louis XI died in 1483, and the rest of the Low Countries decided they preferred Maximilian to the Flemish, the course was once again set for full-scale revolt, open warfare, and Flemish cities fighting against the man who claimed the right to rule them. Welcome back to your favourite podcast, The History of Flemish Revolts. Since it has been a while, let us reorient ourselves in our chronology for a moment. In the first part of the last episode, we discussed the Treaty of Arras, which was signed in late December 1482, and which brought peace between Maximilian of Habsburg and the King of France, Louis XI. The treaty had been negotiated over the latter half of 1482 between representatives of the States General of the Low Countries on one side, with the powerful and wealthy Flemish in the driving seat, and Louis XI on the other. Maximilian had been none too happy about being forced into signing this humiliating peace treaty by his uppity subjects, but given his precarious political position at this point, he didn't really have a choice. Remember that Mary and Maximilian's joint rule had been popular because of the stability it had brought to the Burgundian realm after it had been rocked by the premature death of Charles the Bold. When Mary died, however, Maximilian found himself bereft of allies, a foreign prince in a foreign land, surrounded by energetic enemies in the nobility and in the powerful cities of Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres. To quote Philip de Comines, quote, The Duke was very young, had but few about him that were proper to manage an affair of that importance, for all the brave men belonging to the House of Burgundy were either slain or revolted so that coming thither with a small retinue and having lost his duchess, who was sovereign in these provinces, he lost much of his former confidence and durst not speak so boldly to his subjects as when she was alive. End quote. In short, things weren't looking great for Maximilian at this point. 
After we'd done that in the previous episode, for the sake of a satisfying narrative, we then veered away from Flanders completely to finish off the story about how Maximilian was able to wrestle back Burgundian control over Utrecht and finally to quell the rebellious wild boar of the Ardennes in Liège. Well, today, it is time to return to Flanders and see what happened after the signing of the Treaty of Arras. The treaty's conception and negotiation by the Flemish estates can be considered the opening phase of the Flemish revolts of 1482 to 1492. During these 10 years, there would be two large revolts against Maximilian, the first of which we are going to cover in today's episode. The question of whether Maximilian would rule for his son Philip facilitated a fracturing of Flemish society into fervent factions fueled by friction. On the one hand were the Monitans, and some might say Manitans, but it doesn't feel right to us, so we're going to go with Monitans. And they were the people who supported Maximilian. On the other hand were the Philippines, who were wealthy Flemish burghers and nobles who sought to wrest the regency control of the young Archduke Philip away from Maximilian, and so to rule Flanders more independently of a central Burgundian government. In the months before the Treaty of Arras was signed, it was these Flemish power brokers, sometimes allied with similar Brabantine power brokers, which included high nobles and wealthy merchant patricians who imposed their will on the state's general and on Maximilian by acting on behalf of his authority, negotiating with the French king. Like we said in the previous episode, most of this Flemish resistance was being driven by the leading citizens of Ghent. This included its pensionary, Willem Rheim, who also represented Ghent at meetings of the States General, and one of its leading aldermen, Daniel Onredener, as well as one of the city secretaries, Jan van Koppenhol. The power and influence that these people in Ghent wielded was such that they had compelled the Habsburg prince to agree to this treaty, which he did in absentia via a, no doubt, grumpy-faced proxy. As for the French king, Louis XI, his overarching aim in all of this was to undo much of what the previous Treaty of Arras of 1435 had accomplished. If you cast your mind back, you'll remember, in that agreement, Burgundy under Philip the Good managed to extricate itself from the suzerainty of the French king, and take possession of those bloody Somme towns. Via that treaty, Philip the Good had been given a wider path towards centralization of the Burgundian Low Countries, while also keeping the rich Flemish urban elite somewhat in check. In this newer version, however, Louis XI reinstituted the Parliament of Paris as the highest judicial court over the one that Charles the Bold had established in Mechelen, and he emphatically highlighted, without question, that Flanders was a vassal of he and all of his successors. What that meant is that the new count, Mary and Maximilian's young son Philip, would be required to pay homage to the French king once he came of age. On an international level, the timing of the treaty suited Louis's designs. One of his biggest impediments was the alliance that had formed between Burgundy, England, and Brittany. Back in 1477, Louis XI and the English king Edward IV had agreed to the Treaty of Pichigny, in which Edward agreed to call off an invasion of France that he had promised to Charles the Bold 
in exchange for a nice yearly bribe, I mean pension, from Louis XI. One of the conditions of the Treaty of Picigny had been that Edward IV's daughter, Elizabeth, was to marry the Dauphin, Charles. Over the next few years, Margaret of York had worked very hard to rebuild relations between the court of her older brother in England and those of her Burgundian husband and then stepdaughter and then her stepson-in-law. But in England, Edward IV had made the most of his immense power by consuming an immense amount of food and drink. Furthermore, in 1482, he had gotten his army involved in an expensive and useless campaign to try and overthrow the Scottish throne. When Louis and the States General, acting on behalf of the central government, negotiated the Treaty of Arras, they omitted the inclusion of any representatives from England or Brittany, as would have been custom given the alliance. Leaving them out effectively ended the alliance and would leave Maximilian standing around holding his own, uh, sword. A shame, given all the hard work that had been done to rebuild that alliance. But then the Flemish and the French doubled down on the indignity for England by annulling the marriage plans between Elizabeth and the Dauphin. Instead, they arranged for him to marry the infant Margaret of Austria, Mary and Max's daughter, to again quote Philip de Comines, quote, But whoever was pleased with this match, the King of England was highly affronted, for he thought himself deluded and baffled and in danger of losing his pension or tribute as the English call it. He feared, likewise, it would render him contemptible and mean at home and occasion some rebellion because he had rejected the remonstrances of his parliament. Besides, he saw the King of France encroaching upon and ready to invade his dominions with a very great force. And by this he means the French armies which had been active in the Low Countries, carrying on, which made such a deep impression upon his spirits that he fell sick upon it immediately and died not long after, though some say of a Qatar. But let them say what they please. The general opinion was the consumption of this marriage killed him in the month of April 1483, end quote. Qatar, by the way, is what they called an excessive buildup of mucus in the throat. We're not referring to a Middle Eastern emirate. So, as we just learned from Comines, within about four months of the Treaty of Arras, the English king was dead, having succumbed to his excesses on the 9th of April. Excuse me, a slight digression, but Edward IV had been married to a woman from a common but wealthy family, Elizabeth Woodville. They had had two sons, Edward and Richard, named after their father and uncle respectively. They were 12 and 9 years old in the middle of 1483 when their father died. Their powerful uncle, the younger prince's namesake, became their regent. We have met him before, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, the other younger brother of Margaret of York. We last saw him in episode 35 when he spent time as a child in exile in Utrecht. Well, now he was over 30 years old, and the brother of a deceased king, who was now third in line for the throne. In preparation for the coronation of the 12-year-old boy who was meant to become Edward V, the two young princes were lodged in the Tower of London, and never publicly seen again. They were officially declared illegitimate and their fate became one of the greatest unsolved whodunits in English history, the mystery of the princes in the tower. 
Before long, their uncle, who is quite widely believed to have, well, done it, was crowned Richard III, King of England. Once again, Margaret of York, on the other side of the channel, sitting in her town of Mechelen, saw the machinations of power tear her family apart. But let's not get too distracted. So, back across the channel to the Low Countries, when the treaty was signed in late 1482, in towns and the countryside, there was a general relief that peace terms had been reached and that there might not be any more bands of marauding French soldiers roaming around in the near future. But in the county of Artois, which as part of the treaty was included in young Margaret's dowry and so effectively handed to the Dauphin, one of its main cities, Saint-Omer, was virulently anti-French. They decided that they would not allow the Dauphin to take possession until his marriage had been consummated, which given young Margaret's age would not be for quite some years. High-level opponents of the marriage arrangement then began to spread rumours about the actual legitimacy of the Dauphin and suggest that he was not Louis XI's son, but rather that of Louis's son-in-law, Peter II of Bourbon, who was married to Louis's eldest daughter, Anne. Saucy stuff. These rumours spread beyond Artois and into Flanders, causing murmurs of discontent along the lines of division that existed between all these factions. Remember that in an age before Instagram, you had to take somebody's word for whether something, or indeed somebody else, actually existed. The Dauphin could not just send out a TikTok video to prove that he had TikTok. Pretty soon, the rumours took on their own life, and people in houses and drinking halls across Flanders were leaning into their compatriots and whispering things like, nobody has ever actually seen the Dauphin, perhaps he doesn't even exist all the while knowingly raising a conspiratorial eyebrow as proof. Such was the general uncertainty that a bunch of Flemish ambassadors were soon sent off to France to go and see the Dauphin with their own eyes and get some verification. Sure enough, the Dauphin did actually exist, and so he was paraded in front of this Flemish embassy and a crowd of their servants that had basically forced themselves in to make sure of it. During this spectacle, the Dauphin gave away his expensive tabard, like a coat, to one of the commoners. And as Jane DeLong writes in her biography of Margaret of Austria, quote, Without his coat, Charles was even better to be seen, and letters from eyewitnesses told admiringly of his sturdy calves. That's again, really saucy stuff. Oof, look at those calves. Calves, of course, being the backside of his legs and not a bunch of young, stout, and good-looking cows that were following him around. After this, this embassy went to see Louis XI at his castle of Plessis-le-Tour. He had been ailing over the previous five years. In 1480, he suffered what was probably a stroke, which rendered him unable to speak for a short time. He went to the castle nearby Tours while negotiating the Treaty of Arras with the Flemish. Comines describes the solitary paranoia, into which he was descending, and he does so with some length, so have a seat. Quote, The king returned to Tours, and kept himself so close, that very few were admitted to see him, for he was grown marvellously jealous of all his courtiers, and afraid they would either depose him, or deprive him of some part of his authority. He removed from about him all his old servants, especially if they had any extraordinary familiarity with him. Nobody was admitted, into the Plessis du Parc, 
which was the place in the castle where he resided, but his domestic servants and his archers, who were in number 400, some of whom kept constant guard at the gate, while others patrolled continually about to prevent its being surprised. No lord nor person of quality was permitted to lodge in the castle, nor to enter with any of his retinue, nor indeed were any of them admitted, but the Lord de Beaujeu, who is the aforementioned Peter de Bourbon, by the way, of the scandalous bastard Dauphon rumour. Continuing on, round about the castle of Plessis, he caused a lattice of iron bars to be set up, and spikes of iron to be planted in the wall, with several points projecting along the ditch, wherever there was a possibility for any person to enter. End quote. So, it was in this prison-like one-person fortress that the Flemish envoys came to speak to Louis XI, who met them in a dim room, shrouded by shadows, so that they could not even clearly see his face, and therefore not see how ill he really was. Content with the arrangements of the marriage, and that the Dauphin actually existed, the envoy left carrying a deep impression of Louis's power, despite his pale infirmity. They also left with a very handy bribe from the king that would ensure that they agreed to allow both Artois and Franche Comte to remain as part of Margaret's dowry. The terms of the treaty then could go ahead. However, it was not until spring of 1483 that the weather was deemed good enough for the three-year-old Margaret to make her journey to the French court to begin life as the first woman of France. As described by Jane DeLong, quote, For this great journey she wore a little black satin dress, all embroidered in gold thread, and a black velvet hat without a brim, over a white muslin veil. End quote. Her step-grandmother, Margaret of York, watched on as the young Margaret of Austria was loaded into a coach decked out in typical spectacular Burgundian fashion. She was to be handed over to the French at Hesdin, and along the way was escorted by a large retinue of powerful Flemish and Brabantine nobles and clergy, including the Lord of Ravenstein, Adolf of Cleves, as well as Wolfert van Borsela, the Lord of Vierde, the Chancellor of Brabant, their respective wives, about 30 to 40 other ladies-in-waiting, and the abbots of a bunch of powerful monasteries. This grand procession was not only coming along to enjoy the festivities, which they were expecting would take place, but also to make sure that there weren't any last-ditch efforts by Maximilian to try and retake control of his daughter. The procession wound its way from Ghent to Lille, where they halted for a couple of weeks before receiving word that Louis's eldest daughter, Anne de Beaujeu, and her husband Peter were ready for their arrival at Hesdin. Upon arrival in Hesdin, there were several days' worth of solemn ceremonies where the French and Burgundian nobles went through the formalities of arranging the marriage. At one point, Anne de Beaujeu and her husband were given permission to look at the infant, Margaret, in the nude, to make sure that everything was how it was supposed to be, which is another clear example of how the children of nobility back then were basically treated like very finely clothed livestock. Satisfied with what they saw, the next day after Mass, the official engagement ceremony was conducted in the hall of the castle, where all the important people from both sides packed in to listen to the marriage contract and peace terms being read out loud. After this was done, Margaret of Austria, the, don't forget, three-year-old child for whom all of this fuss was being made, 
and who had probably been sleeping on her nurse's lap the entire time, was officially handed over to the Lord of Beaujeu, who then, to quote the Chronicle of Bresson, which this story has been coming from, quote, replaced her in the hands of her nurse, end quote. And that was it. After the ceremony, the Flemish delegation had been expecting that there would be some kind of extravagant feast, as tradition would have had it. But much to their displeasure, there was nothing, not even a small get-together, just, you know, for a barbecue and a chat about the fortunes of English football. It's coming to Rome! So the next day, as they prepared to return disappointed to Flanders, these women who had accompanied Margaret put on all of their fanciest clothing, which they had packed for the party which never was, as a means of letting their disappointment and anger be seen, and parted ways with the French, glittering in a grieved chagrin, trotting away in a wave of petulance, precious stones and pointy hats. Margaret, then, this baby, was left with the French, only her nurse, Jean de Besanton, being permitted to remain with her. After this, they would whisk her back to Ambois in France, where she would finally meet her fiancé and be educated at the French court. Although this will not be the last we see of Margaret of Austria. For now... Let us bid her adieu. As for the other Burgundian territories in the Low Countries, the rest of them remained loyal to Maximilian, not discounting Brabant's teetering on the edge of fully aligning with Flanders against him. In fact, in October 1482, Brabant and Flanders had come to an agreement of mutual defence. In May 1483, then, having seen the Flemish basically sell his daughter to the French, Maximilian took out his anger on five deputies from the estates of Brabant, including a knight and government officials from Antwerp, Brussels and Lofer, who were all arrested by the Duke's men. Members of this group had been integral in the construction and negotiation of the Treaty of Arras. Maximilian had them charged with treason and executed. Brabant itself had already been becoming more suspicious of the dominant attitude coming out of Flanders, especially in that the young Prince Naturel, the Archduke Philip, was not being let out of Ghent at all and had not been brought to, say, Brussels as a gesture of mutual alliance. As C.A.J. Armstrong put it in his chapter of the New Cambridge Modern History, titled the Burgundian Netherlands, 1477 to 1521, this would become a turning point for how events would unravel in the decades and, I suppose, the centuries to come. Quote, The unswerving loyalty of Antwerp towards the central authority dates from this event. End quote. As for Flemish society, and as was usual with these matters, there was no unity on the issue of whether Maximilian should be the mumbo to his children. Much like the 21st century is divided into pro and anti-vaxxers, in the late 15th century, Flanders was divided into pro and anti-maxers, especially in those good old hotspots for the foment of revolt, Bruges, Ghent, and Ypres. The competing sides had solidified into factions, the anti-max Philippines and the pro-max Monitans. We do not need to remind you, though, that although these factions might have broadly aligned from city to city, they all had their own localized differences and characteristics and were composed by different people with their own political agendas. One of the Philippines' cliques in Bruges was led by a wealthy merchant 
called Willem Morel, and he and his mates and his kin came to hold sway locally. Morel's men were put into positions of power throughout Bruges, and Morel himself became the main man in town. Much the same happened in Ghent, but under the auspices of Willem Reim, Daniel Onredener, and Jan van Koppenholm. A coalition of some of the most powerful lords in the Low Countries also aligned themselves with the anti-Max power brokers in the towns. These were pretty much the same people who had accompanied Margaret on her journey into the clutches of France, and some of whose names have been popping up a fair bit during our most recent previous episodes. Adolf of Cleves, the Lord of Ravenstein, Philip of Burgundy, the Lord of Beferer, who was the son of the famous Bastard of Burgundy, so therefore the Bastard grandson of Philip the Good, Louis de Groothuis, formerly the large library-owning Stadtholder in Holland, Adrian Filan, the Lord of Rassachem, Wolfert van Borsele, the Lord of Vera, who had disastrously chosen to support the Hook faction during his short term as Stadtholder of Holland and Zeeland, and Jacob of Savoy, the Count of Romont. By the time the treaty was signed, this coalition of town burghers and nobles had by now well and truly taken it upon themselves to call the shots on behalf of the young Archduke Philip. To this end, and from this coalition, a Regency Council was established. Yella Hummers, whose work we have leaned upon very heavily for this whole period, points out that they were not trying to wrest total independent control away from the overarching Burgundian structure, but rather that, quote, the cities did not dismiss the central state, but reinterpreted it as a federation, a political union comprising a number of partially self-governing cities united by a central, federal, government, the Regency Council, end quote. The council's argument for legitimacy rested upon the original marriage contract between Mary of Burgundy and Maximilian, which had specifically disallowed either of them inheriting each other's lands and titles. As you may recall, they had later signed a secret annulment of that clause between each other. There was also a precedent that had been set in Brabant, when the states had appointed just such a council to rule during the ducal regency of John IV, who had been that useless second husband of Jacqueline of Bavaria, who we covered all the way back in episode 21. Maximilian's upbringing and demeanour meant that, to his mind, what he and the Duchess had agreed to together, insofar as their lands and titles went, far outweighed what a bunch of haughty commoners in the States General had tried to impose upon their wedding contract, and whatever precedent had been set by Brabant. These same commoners had forced a peace treaty on him, which they had treacherously negotiated with France themselves. After all, even the French king had seen Arras as an agreement, quote, with those of Flanders, end quote. And to go with this humiliation, Maximilian had lost his only daughter to the whims of the French court, and his son was in the clutches of the very same haughty commoners who had contrived all of this. But it was at this very moment that Maximilian found himself needing to go to deal with yet another set of haughty commoners and put the city of Utrecht under siege, which we spoke about at the end of last episode. If he went north, with things still up in the air in Flanders, he may well have lost control of the entire situation completely. So bereft was he of economic, social, and political capital in the county. 
As such, on the 5th of June, 1483, he ratified the creation of the Rebellious Regency Council, if only to buy himself some time while he went to sort out Utrecht. In return for this temporary agreement, Landers was compelled to pay an annuity of 20,000 crowns in return, which is an unusual solution to the original problem that had given rise to this Flemish power grab in the first place, which was them always having to pay money to the ducal court. The terms agreed upon at this point clearly do not represent Maximilian ceding control to the Regency Council. He gives them responsibility to, quote, care, charge, and conduct the affairs of our country and county of Flanders, as long as we please, end quote. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that it would not please him for very long. And speaking of things which are not pleasing, here's an ad break. Fortunately, it should also not last too long. See you on the other side. Greetings, comrades! Oh, wait, no, you're not comrades. You're listening to the History of Netherlands podcast. My bad. I'm Christoph Sandreisons from the Eastern Border podcast. And if you want to listen to real Soviet history as told by the people who live there, or some Russian politics interest you, come join and listen to us, the Eastern Border, at whatever podcast sphere that you're into, because, well, we've been shot at by artillery, and we take this seriously. But now, Enjoy the show. The Eastern Border salutes the history of the Netherlands, the first capitalistic na- nation on the planet. Arg, our nemesis. Welcome to the. Welcome back. No doubt, one of the key factors which had emboldened the Flemish rebellion against Maximilian had been the support they had enjoyed from the French king Louis XI who himself no doubt reveled in watching the seeds of discord that he had been sowing come into bloom. But alas for Louis, enjoying these successes would be short-lived, and so too would he. On the 30th of August, having suffered another stroke, the man who some called the Universal Spider, because of the webs of intrigue and deception that he wove, finally wove his way off this mortal coil. Louis XI has been journeying with us since way back in episode 27. We have seen him go from a royal baby, born in the midst of dire times for his family during one of France's lowest ebbs in the Hundred Years' War, to become an exiled prince, an enemy of his own father, the king. He charmingly endeared himself to his Burgundian hosts while plotting their eventual downfall, and when he did become the sovereign of France, then wielded all the tools of manipulation that he had to punish his enemies and remain one of the continent's most powerful people, as well as, it is worth pointing out, reforming many aspects of French society in ways that we don't care about because this is not the History of France podcast. His rule at the beginning had been immediately caught up in a civil war with the strongest French nobles and Charles the Bold. In fact, there had scarce been a time during his 21-year reign that France was not at war with somebody, and not least with itself. The spider, however, had managed to outlive pretty much all of the major enemies he had made in that time. Chief among these were the kings of Aragon and England, and the dukes of Milan and Burgundy. 
His relationship with Charles the Bold, in particular, seemed to represent a personal distaste of the condition of the Low Countries, and especially Flanders, being under Burgundian control. But such was Louis XI's way, using his immense skills of deceit, manipulation, and a flexible understanding of the term loyalty as means of achieving his desired ends. Perhaps the best example is how he reacted to the news of Mary of Burgundy's death in 1482. He was by then already of poor health, but Comines tells us that, quote, The king told me the news with a great deal of joy and satisfaction, end quote. Indeed, one of the last moments of celebration that the old French king had enjoyed was marking the death of his goddaughter, a woman who, when she was just a newborn baby, he had cradled in his arms, having awaited her arrival outside the birth chamber while her actual father was hunting. That sums up Louis XI, the universal spider. And now, he was dead, and France would once more fall into the complex vagaries of dynastic succession and a tumult of regency, and we can try not to talk about them for a little while at least. By September 1483, Maximilian's fortunes were changing. A few days after Louis XI's death, the peace was signed in Utrecht, which maintained his control over that bishopric as well as cod-dominated Holland. Back in the south, at a fair in Antwerp in September 1483, he publicly disbanded the Regency Council. The Regency Council, for its part, basically ignored this. As insults and barbs were traded back and forth, the alternative government slipped into being a revolutionary one, completely dismissive of the Archduke's authority over them. In a manifesto published in October 1483, Maximilian wrote, quote, We know expressly that this arises from a few of low-rank, frivolous, and haughty people, a small number of evildoers who more consider their own special advantage over the welfare of my son, such as Adrian van Ruschem, Willem Rheim, Daniel Onredener, and Jan van Koppenhol, end quote. A vicious stalemate ensued over the winter and the two sides began inflicting economic pain on one another. In March 1484, Maximilian ordered all foreign merchants to leave the rebellious city of Bruges. On the Flemish side, Ghent blocked grain supplies to the other parts of the Netherlands, while Bruges organised the construction of a building that could blockade the Scheldt and dry up the goods coming into the Brabantine port of Antwerp. In June 1484... An unexpected attempt to mediate this conflict emerged in the form of the Grand Bastard of Burgundy, Anthony. This long-lasting and powerful bastard son of Philip the Good had switched allegiances to the French court following the defeat of his half-brother Charles the Bold at Nancy. But now, what with France dissolving into its own crisis of regency, he flip-flopped his way back towards where he believed the winds of his own fortune were blowing and re-entered the Burgundian fold. Having been away from the local political scene for the last seven years, he was broadly accepted as a somewhat impartial mediator, while also, importantly, remaining intimately related to the ducal family at the centre of it all. The court in which he would attempt this mediation was, of course, that of the Order of the Golden Fleece. Maximilian had revived the order in 1478, negating Louis XI's attempts to bring it into his web. Remember, it was strictly forbidden for the members of the Order of the Golden Fleece to wage war with one another. 
but now five of the Order's members were on the Flemish Council of Regency in plated and revolutionary opposition to the Sovereign of the Order himself. The mediation attempt represented the first time that the Order of the Golden Fleece was seen as a court that recognised and gave validity to wider interests than just those of its sovereign. The demands made to the Grand Bastard by both parties, as outlined by Wim Blockmans in his article, Autocracy or Poliaki, highlight the core grievances behind this revolt. There are eight points to this. On the Flemish side, the marriage contract between Max and Mary stands, and he had no right to Mary's property. He had no right to the Burgundian titles and coat of arms. The Regency Council and government would continue. The Golden Fleece would safeguard Philip's rights in all of his principalities. Philip would remain in Ghent under control of the Regency Council. There would be amnesty between both parties. There would be free trade. And the Grand Bastard and Philip of Cleves would vouch for these terms. For his part, Maximilian's argument was that he was simply executing the will of his deceased wife, Mary, which gave him the right to government and that every other of the Low Countries had already recognised this as such. The Flemings were stopping this will from being carried out. He also maintained that his son Philip was being held by them unlawfully, which, you know, is probably fair enough. On June 14th, the Knights of the Order submitted to Maximilian their opinion on the two sides of the argument, Again, as outlined by Blockmans, they found that Maximilian and Mary had, quote, not entered into a firm marriage contract and proposed that Maximilian say he was ready to solemnly declare, one, that he claimed no other right than the Regency and the Mamboni of the rights of his minor children, two, that he would be called during this minority as father and Mambo of his official son, and three, that the use of the coat of arms of the House of Burgundy would not prejudice the rights of the heirs of the Duchess, end quote. Unsurprisingly though, in reaction to this, the representatives of Ghent, Willem Reim and Daniel Onredener, reacted by rudely walking out. The Chronicle of Despar, which was later written by the bourgeois mayor Nicolas Despar, decades after these events, but based on the contemporary chronicles as well as the work of his grandfather, said of this defiant action by the two Ghent aldermen, quote, It was all a waste of effort, since the aforementioned Archduke did not answer other than that he would have no dealings with the boards and clowns of Ghent, but that he would be regent and guardian of his children, whether they liked it or not, end quote. As an aside, the names of those two leading figures in Ghent, Rhyme and Onredener, can basically be translated into English as rhyme and unreason, which is just beautiful and apt. Maximilian really thought they were just scum. And speaking of scum, well, ding, 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 it is time for your favourite segment of this podcast. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The English word scum is derived from the Dutch word schuim, which means foam. As it says on the online dictionary of etymology, the quote, sense deteriorated from thin layer atop liquid to film of dirt, then just dirt, meaning lowest class of humanity, end quote. It's quite an interesting change in meaning. Coincidentally, schuim is also part of one of the most difficult to pronounce Dutch words, schierschuim, 
meaning shaving foam. And after I spit everywhere trying to pronounce that, well, everything gets covered in scum. Scum. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The outcome of the official arbitration by the Golden Fleece was that the Flemish stuck fast by their demands to rule through the Regency Council, but also that two Knights of the Order, Anthony of Burgundy, the bastard, who was kind of neutral, and Philip of Cleves, whose father, Adolf, sat on the Regency Council, but who personally remained in Maximilian's service, promised to safeguard the rights of the young Philip to at least travel into those Burgundian territories that had sworn continued fealty to Maximilian as his member. With the unsatisfying conclusion of the negotiations, open warfare between Flanders and Maximilian was fast becoming the most likely outcome. In October, Flanders signed an alliance with the regents, ruling in France for the underage king Charles VIII, once more bringing the French into the matter. That was a short time that we were rid of the French. They're back. Not only this, but they appointed a new lieutenant general to lead the Flemish forces, Jacob of Savoy, who was the Count of Romont. He was also known as Jacob the Aggressive, which, you know, tells you a bit about how he went about things, or at least how history records him as going about things. Flemish economic power was great, and Maximilian's own financial situation was very poor comparatively. But these outright acts of Flemish independence were seen as overt and dangerous acts of self-aggrandizement by the remainder of the territories represented in the States General, and particularly in Holland. By November, Maximilian felt that the only solution to this problem would be to take a rampaging army into Flanders and crush the rebels once and for all. It was not necessarily what he wished to do, but what he felt he had to do. As he reportedly once told his nephew, he really wanted to spend some time hunting and dancing, but feared he would have to kill 10,000 Flemings before he could do so in peace. Now, with pretty good general support across the Low Countries, with the exception of Flanders, of course, Maximilian began to rustle up troops, easily propagandizing that Flanders had to be crushed for the good of the whole Burgundian realm. In November 1484, he called a meeting of the States General, which unsurprisingly, Flanders did not rock up to. The rest of the States General officially gave the go-ahead to war. Soon, Dutch troops and German mercenaries were marching into Flanders. Dendermonde was the first to fall, but it was through deception, rather than all-out attack. A sort of Trojan horse ploy was concocted. Maximilian's troops, dressed as monks, nuns, merchants and other peasants, clambered into three wagons which set off from Mechelen at about 4am on the 26th of November. Reaching Dendermonde at around 11am, they put an abbess and some nuns in front to talk with the porters at the gate. While this distraction was underway, the wagons ground to a halt, and the troops within leaped down and secured the gate to the town. As Molinet put it, quote, by means of suitable instruments, end quote by which he pretty much means swords and other very sharp things. When Maximilian arrived alongside 800 knights, he led them into the town, whose anti-Maxa faction was trying to rally a stout defence. A little bit of fighting ensued, which left a few of Max's nobles dead on the road, but otherwise the plan worked very well. The fighting for Flanders, though, had only just begun. Jacob of Savoy, Jacob the Aggressive, who was commanding the Flemish forces, 
had about 16,000 troops at his back. His reaction to the fall of Dendermonde was, well, aggressive. They began raiding through Flanders, pushing right up to the borders of Brabant, particularly threatening Brussels. They cut down trees, burned farmlands, and violated surrounding villages for two weeks. The people in the regions they were attacking were only spared when disease swept through their ranks. Maximilian's army pressed on then, taking Aldenada in January 1485, where he named Philip of Cleves as the castle's temporary governor. People in the rebellious cities who were not fully in line with the Regency government began to see which way the wind was blowing and began looking abroad for help. A delegation of Ghent citizens was again sent to France to try and press them for help with more than words. In April 1485, Maximilian's armies took Gerardsberger and Ninofer, and Ghent found itself surrounded on three sides. But then, rather surprisingly, a French army of 4,500 troops under the command of Philip de Crevecoeur showed up and were able to maneuver their way around Maximilian's forces to get into Ghent. Maximilian made an attempt to take the city, but was unable to get inside. Inside Ghent itself, however, one of the anti-Maxa leaders, Jan van Koppenhol, listened fearfully as the words Friend Ostenreich, or Friend of Austria, began to ring through the streets. The citizens from whose mouths these words came wanted it to be known to Maximilian's forces when they inevitably did make it into the city that it was not them who had committed injustice upon him. In the middle of June, there were coups in Bruges and Ghent, with the leaders of the radical anti-Maxa government arrested by the Moniton loyalists or forced to flee. This included Reim and Onredener, the two who had walked out of the Golden Fleece mediation. They were arrested in Ghent on the 13th of June and, in classic Ghent fashion, were shortly thereafter hastily tried and relieved of their heads. Coppenhol managed to escape from his arrest and did the smart thing in terms of preserving his own life promptly fleeing to France, where he would take up residence at the French court and bide his time. We will see him again in another episode shortly. Adrian Fillon, the Lord of Rassachem, was released the day after Reim and Onredener were executed, and helped to organise the peace with Maximilian. Worried about also being prematurely parted with his head by a mob of angry Chentenars, he also then promptly fled to Tournai. At this point, the civil war slash this phase of the Flemish revolt was basically over. The French troops, which had been at Ghent, behaved so poorly that they ingloriously retreated back to France via Tournai. In April 1485, Philip, the Lord of Bifra, one of the Regency Council members and son of the Bastard of Burgundy, defected back to Maximilian's side and helped organise peace with Bruges. Louis of Hutaus was taken into custody and would spend the next few years languishing in said custody in various prisons throughout the Low Countries. In this mopping up, the Monitons were helped by men working for Adolf of Cleves, the Lord of Ravenstein, who had also sat on the rebellious Regency Council, but was now, what with Max on the verge of victory, more amenable to re-ingratiating himself with the Archduke. Maximilian also knew what it meant to have no supporters in the Low Countries, and that having Ravenstein behind him from this point would be extremely handy. The two were able to reconcile, and Adolf, the Lord of Ravenstein, 
once again went into paid service for Maximilian. If you are looking for a really good overview of how Maximilian meted out his punishments, one resource that we really appreciate and recommend and wanted to make note of is the 2014 Master's Thesis written by historian Joey Spikers called Punished and Corrected as an Example to All. In the diversity of punishments upon the urban patricians and the nobility who had rebelled, it definitely paid to be in the latter of these two groups, and even more so if you happen to be related to or married into the Burgundian bloodline, such as the Lord of Ravensheim was. If you weren't lucky enough to be married into the governing clan, then certainly this was the perfect time to try and do so if you could. And that's exactly what Wolfert van Borsela and Jacob of Savoy, Jacob the Aggressive, the Lord of Ramont, who'd been ravaging around with 16,000 men, did. Van Borsela arranged for his daughter Anna to marry Philip of Burgundy, the Lord of Bifron, while Jacob of Savoy arranged a marriage between his wife's sister and Philip of Cleves, saving their own lives by trading the future inheritance of their lands. Maximilian arrived in Bruges on the 22nd of June, 1485, and a treaty was arranged between him and the Flemish estates on the 28th of June. The urban city leaders of the rebellion in Bruges, led by Willem Morel and his compatriots, were left out of this peace, and Morel fled to Turnai, where he too would linger in exile, waiting for another opportunity to revolt. Wasn't going to take long. On the 6th of July, Maximilian left Bruges to go and deal punishment out on the revolting people of Ghent. Along the way, however, Adolf of Cleves, the Lord of Ravenstein who was just reconciled with him, came to him and finally handed over the young Archduke of Burgundy, the Count of Flanders, Philip, back to his father. According to Molinet, quote, And when the son saw the father, he took off his hat, and at the approach did the honours together. And when he came to join him, they embraced and kissed one another, whose hearts of those who saw them were so full of joy that they wept with great tears. End quote. It had been more than three years since the two had seen each other, after Philip and Maximilian's reunion, the young Count of Flanders was then shipped off to live under the guidance of his grandmother, Margaret of York, in her dowager town of Mechelen. Finally, on the 7th of July, Maximilian made his entrance into Ghent. The city had been taken by his troops. However, there was a strong contingent of mercenary German troops in the town who had run rampant throughout over a number of days, sacking and brutalizing the locals. Just four days after Maximilian's arrival, the Ghent Workers' Guild and militia were once again standing under their banners in the market square, ready to fight these soldiers. You may recall that in 1453, following Ghent's revolt against Philip the Good, which we covered in episode 26, he had stripped the city of its rights and banned the militia from keeping their banners and assembling. He had also been advised to burn the city to the ground yet had chosen not to. Well, now, Maximilian probably rather wished that he had, and actually seriously contemplated destroying the entire city himself. This time, however, the counsel he received from Philip of Cleves and his stepmother-in-law, the indefatigable Margaret of York, convinced him not to. Philip of Cleves suggested that if he did burn down Ghent, he would, quote, lose the flower and pearl 
of all of his lands, end quote. The citizens also chimed in, begging him, quote, to prefer grace and mercy to strictness or rigor of justice, end quote. Before this riot against the rampaging German mercenaries got out of hand, Philip of Cleves was able to use a force of around 300 Swiss mercenaries to arrest the ringleaders and to quash it. Maximilian was just in no mood to deal kindly with the Gentenars after this, and he foisted a peace on the city that was separate and harsher than what the rest of Flanders had to bear. He once more stripped them of what rights they had earned back since that previous revolt four decades earlier, in an action that was certainly reminiscent for the common memory of Gentenars, one of the Archduke's officials publicly tore apart the very favourable town charter which they had wrangled from Mary of Burgundy via the Great Privilege of 1477. So things had come up pretty good for Maximilian at this stage, and there were other things that he was due to enjoy, steadily approaching on the horizon. In November 1485, fairly soon after subduing Flanders, he set off to see his father, Frederick III, the Holy Roman Emperor, who himself was approaching the pointy end of life's stick. It was time for one of the emperor's most esteemed titles to be passed on to a successor, and Maximilian was that successor. He would head to Germany to be elected as the King of the Romans. It's coming, Rome. What he would do while bearing that crown, ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners, well... That is for another day and for another episode of History of the Netherlands. Thanks so much for listening to History of the Netherlands. For those who have been traveling with us for some time, you would have noticed that of late, we have been struggling to get episodes out on a regular and decent basis. This trickle is hopefully coming to an end, and we hope to be back on a more reliable and thorough stream of production sooner rather than later. As we mentioned at the start, there are a couple of reasons for this. Some of these are simply life-related, with a few personal circumstances changing dramatically and demanding our attention. Oh, there's also been the pandemic, that's still going, but also the fact that our day jobs are slowly coming back, well at least they were until a few days ago, as people begin to once again travel to the Netherlands and Amsterdam, where they choose to go on boats, driven by us and running under the auspices of those damn boat guys. If you are in Amsterdam and looking for the absolute best thing you can do there, then go and check out thosedamnboatguys.com or tdbg.com for more information on that. And given that we're probably going back into a very dark red lockdown, do it soon. Finally, and most excitingly for us, and we hope for you, well, it's great news. We have an office. Well, we have an office space. In the 1970s and 80s, Amsterdam had a really strong squatting scene. And although in recent years the city has set about demolishing a lot of these, there are buildings and complexes around the place which are homes to thousands of creative people living and working in cooperatives and trying to maintain old buildings which would otherwise have been destroyed long ago. One of those buildings is called De Fabrique. It is a complex of buildings which used to house a printing press in the first half of the last century. It was squatted and is now the home to a community, as well as having been a theatre for some of the last 10 years. Well, now the old theatre part has been secured by the community and they decided to create different workspaces in it. 
We got in touch to tell them about what we do, and luckily for us, they have decided to welcome us into their community, which we feel really privileged for and are absolutely stoked about. The workrooms themselves, however, well, they actually have to be built. So for the previous few months, we have been doing things like tearing down old brick walls and building new ones, creating our own office space. We are extremely happy with it and have gotten to the stage of being able to put the drywall up. This will be the headquarters for Republic of Amsterdam Radio, the umbrella entity under which we make this podcast, as well as other projects that aim to communicate history in diverse and interesting ways. Not only will we be able to work on the history of the Netherlands in a place specifically dedicated to it, in other words, not our living rooms, but we will also be able to pursue other ideas that we have for getting more aspects of Dutch history and culture to more people. So that is our news. You can check out photos of us drilling things and looking dusty on our website, and we will continue to bring you updates on how that is all going and when we are fully up and running. So even though recently it has slowed us right down, it will speed us right up as we make more episodes into the future. None of this, however, would be possible without our very favorite people in the world, who are our listeners, and particularly those who jump onto Patreon.com or who send in donations via PayPal and Ideal. It is you fine folk who will allow us to actually have lights in an office, which we can turn on and keep on. And that is why we feel that the least you deserve is the right to become a signatory of the great privilege of Patreon. So today we are going to add some more names to a list of the finest listeners we could ever hope for. And in doing this, we would like to extend so much gratitude to Bart van Leeuwen, Leo, thank you very much, Leo, Churchill Mulder, also known as Winston Scully to friends, what a superstar, Sander van Hoof, Gritty, Gritters, Australian cricket team in South Africa. <laughs> I was trying to figure out where you're going with that one. <laughs> thank you very much, Gritty. And then B. Roberts, Roberts, Bro, Bert, Brother Bert. Thank you very much, Brother Bert. And lastly, for this week, Tina Forbush. One wood. You found the one wood to our hearts. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you next time on History of the Netherlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.